Hello, good evening, and welcome everyone to the TNT show. I'm John Drummond, and I'll be your host for the next 60, 60 minutes. Now, you know it's been another great day for British democracy. Uh, I gather that Michael Gove, who of course is, is the epitome of probity, has been found to be funneling COVID-assigned money to fund uh, union polling instead. Now, if recent experience is any guide, you shouldn't look for any form of apology <laughs> or any action <laughs> to try and recover the monies. Uh, presumably, that money has now gone. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tonight, uh, we are talking to Laura Moody. Uh, Laura is here to talk about her life and the Scottish Green Party. Now, Laura is the first Green candidate we've had on the show. So this is really, you know, we're, we're, we're breaking ground here. And we've got 60 minutes. TNT. It stands for The Nation Talks. And tonight, The Nation Talks to Laura Moody. Now, Laura, how are you coping with the pandemic? Uh, we've had a, a pretty good pandemic, all things considered. Um, I'm a smallholder, um, so we were at home an awful lot looking after the land. Um, and I've got four children. So the biggest change for us was obviously the, the homeschooling elements. Um, they're, they're quite spread out in age. So we had somebody doing secondary, two in primary, one at nursery age to keep an eye on. Um, I also changed jobs in the middle of the pandemic, which I don't recommend. <laughs> Although actually it did go much more smoothly than I, I feared it might. Um, so that that was interesting and then of course ran for election um, and it was a very different sort of election to the ones I'd done before um, but it was um, really interesting and one of the joys I was standing across the south of Scotland region um, so one of the joys was that there was a lot less time spent behind the wheel of a car but a lot more time sat in front of a computer screen. Yeah. So how did you find that whole experience because you have the unenviable record of having the only person not to be elected, but with the, the greatest vote, in fact. Is that the case? Yes, I think so. I think I've got more votes than anyone else and yet failed to get elected, you know, <laughs> the most that you get without getting elected. So I think very strange. I think if someone had told me in, in January that I was going to get 18,900 votes, I would have been absolutely delighted um, and, and planning planning uh, how I was going to get to Edinburgh. <laughs> um, and and as, as, it, as it happened, that wasn't enough to get us over the line. We missed out by, I think it was 114, 115 votes in the end. Um, yeah, which is really hard when all of the other regions obviously elected uh, MSP or or two MSPs in the case of Lothians. Um, so we're the only region without a green MSP, sadly, but it was still a massive um, boost, um, a huge increase in our votes, um, definitely the biggest and the best campaign we'd run. So there's a lot to take out of it, but obviously uh, hard not to be disappointed when we came that close. I'll bet. Did, did you, uh, I mean, obviously it's a, you know, it's a very odd campaign, as you say, sitting at a television screen instead of actually being in front of, uh, the electorate, where you can actually make your point, you can listen to others, you can respond to others. It's a sort of odd, it seems to be an odd situation to be in, uh, and maybe favour some people rather than others, or some groups rather than others. What was your experience of this, um, you know, the, the vote for the constituency, the vote for the list? How well do, do you think people actually understood that? Um, I think people are getting better at understanding it. I, I think the challenge is in Scotland, particularly, that every time we go to the polls, we have a slightly different system. So it's different for the council elections, it's different for general elections, it's different for European elections and, and Scottish Parliament elections. So I think it's always challenging for people, um, even at this stage when we seem to have quite a lot of elections going on, um, to, to always get their head around what's different every time. And I think this time round as well, the, the length of that second ballot paper, I think a lot of people were not prepared for that. And, um, you know, if they were, you know, in a rush or had been queuing because of the COVID situation, I think a lot of people sort of struggled to, to make head nor tail of it. And I think it was generally a lot easier just to tick, tick the box, same box on each paper and that kind of thing. But people are definitely um, getting a, getting around and getting there with with their knowledge of the system, but um, yeah, it's it's always hard, especially when you've just got to change your your messaging for every election effectively. What's your take on? Some people have said, "Look, this is one of the they say the unfortunate things about the proportional system is that people game game the system." What's your sense of that? 
Do you think people are out there gaming this system? No, and, and one of the joys of the proportional system is actually it's much harder to game than than a straight first-past-the-post system. Actually, you know, tactical voting is what, what first-past-the-post winds up at because everybody knows there are safe seats. That quite often there's a two-horse race, and, and it makes it very, very difficult for anybody to make a breakthrough. Um, whereas with a proportional system, it is proportional. So, um, you know, what, what you end up with is roughly how people vote. Um, and so it's much harder to... to to, to make that change. And I think what's been interesting is I think certain people almost believed their own hype about the, certainly about the Green Party. There was this notion that the, the Greens were only getting elected by um, second choices from other parties or were a tactical vote. And, and the reality is actually the opposite is true. You know, we, we have over a long time built up our, our voters and our support. We have councillors across the country now as well. Um, and and, and, and the people who are voting green are voting green because they believe in green politics, but they don't always get the chance to vote green, either because we're not on the on the ballot or because they know that it's going to be very difficult for us to get over the line. So at the Scottish Parliament elections and at the European elections, to an extent, you could see that people were able to vote green, knowing their vote would count. And accordingly, we got um, much higher vote shares. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I mean... I... It does seem to me that people are beginning to understand the system better. Uh, I think it's a crying shame that um, the UK parliamentary elections don't reflect that proportional viewpoint, because yeah. I think I think it perhaps brings the whole of democracy into discredit because people feel that you know I mean for example you know five people stand in a constituency. Uh, the person who wins gets one vote more than the person who comes second. But the huge mass of people in that community, in that constituency, may be wholly opposed to the person who becomes an MP. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you can often have um, MPs, um, or even the majority of MPs at times, have been not elected on a majority themselves, as it were. They've not got over 50% of the, the vote locally. And I think as well, you know, looking in a wider global European context, first past the post is, is a very strange system. Um, certainly in a European context, um, you know, proportional systems are are much more commonplace. Um, and, and because they're fairer and it it is it is very archaic to still use a, a first past the post system and it and it excludes a lot of people. And that's why you see such relatively low turnouts in elections because a lot of people know their vote won't count. So they don't they don't vote at all. Here's a question that we've got from uh, John Paul uh, Warrenlow who says, um, do you think that the environment really matters to the UK government when it's busy picking fights with Russia and the Black Sea? I don't think it's a priority of this government. And I think they've been that's been very clear by, by their actions, both in terms of foreign policy decisions and cutting off, you know, essentially alienating our neighbours through Brexit is not a wise move when we all need to work together um, to, to tackle the climate crisis and, and a number of other decisions, that, that especially the Conservatives in government. But Labour, where they're empowering councils, you know, they, they pushed through uh, planning permission for a new coal mine in Cumbria not that long ago. Um, so none of the main parties really have environment as a priority. Interestingly, the Climate Change Committee, a um, cross-party committee in Westminster, has been pretty good. Uh, and they've started to come out with some very clear reports, very clear comments, very clear concerns being raised about the direction the government's travelling in and the fact that they're just not taking things seriously enough. Um, they, they, do, they do tend to like to set uh, ambitious targets, but for the far off distance and without very many actions to back them up. And when they do set targets and people fail to meet them, there really doesn't seem to be very much um, activity or consequence to that. They'll just move the target later on and say, oh, isn't it a shame industry hadn't adapted yet? So, um, you know, it's, it's not a priority for the main political parties. It's going to have to start to be, and I've been heartened certainly by Joe Biden's stance, the US president. He's made it very clear that that's his going to be his geopolitical priority. And I think um, other other countries are going to have to start upping their game to meet that. Yeah, um, that, that's really interesting. The, the, uh, and what do you feel about picking fights with Russia and the Black Sea? 
never wise to pick fights with anyone. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Green Party is, is built on four core beliefs, and one of those is, is peace and nonviolence. Um, we're a party that, that supports uh, diplomacy and working together and, and always a last resort. Um, I don't think I don't think Boris Johnson and the cabinet in general's mentality is one of um, working together and peace building and collaboration and cooperation. It is very much an antagonistic bully boy kind of attitude to, to all aspects of policy. And, and that goes through and, and, and it's not a wise thing to do. Uh, we don't need to go around the world picking fights. We've got quite enough on our plate as it is. Um, and, and the world needs to really be pulling together for the massive global effort it's going to take to tackle the climate crisis. Yeah. I do wonder too, that uh, taking on somebody, and you've got what's 39 major ships of war and they have 299. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not the military superpower. We perhaps once were a very long time ago, but then that's not necessarily any bad thing. <laughs> Stephen Kelly is asking about the Australia deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very worrying. <laughs> you, you must you must feel strongly about this. Uh, yeah. he, he's asking, uh, you know, do you think we can ban poor quality Australian foodstuffs uh, and uh, avoid environmental damage? Uh, he says, is there anything in Scots law that would allow the Scottish Parliament, if it were so disposed, to do so? I don't think there is in terms of um, because trade deals are set at, at the UK level. There's very little I think the Scottish government can really do to, to bypass that. What we could do is look at a new agriculture bill that supports our farmers to better compete and better produce food but it's going to be very difficult to prevent things coming in from Australia with the new trade deal signed. And I think it's very worrying in terms of, you know, this is the first of of what is likely to be many trade deals negotiated. And it's very concerning that the example this sets of what they're prepared to trade away. And I know a lot of farmers, um, I live in a, in a, a big farming agricultural area, deeply, deeply worried about the impact that it could potentially have on, on their on on not that farmers are going to change what they do you know i think farmers in this country have high animal welfare standards in general and 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 are already working incredibly hard on incredibly tight margins to produce the food that the country needs that's not going to change but you know we have just made their lives harder if if things with much lower standards much um lower welfare standards are, are enabled to cheaply come into this country um, there is a risk that those full, filled shelves and 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 you know consumers are left as they often are making very difficult decisions and and it's up to government to be at that level where they make sure that the consumers choices um always enable them to make an environmental choice and a, and a, and a healthy choice um as, as cheaply and easily as possible and if government's not doing that then then they can't just shrug their shoulders and leave it up to consumers to decide because consumers, you know, everybody's going to be struggling with a, a tight budget post-pandemic. Yeah, well, we, we could soon end up with a dreaded chlorinated chicken if we're not careful. Uh, but it does seem to me, looking at the situation from a little bit of a distance, because I'm not a farmer, I don't, I know some farmers, but not terribly well. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't consider myself any sort of expert on farming. But a lot of the farmers I know have traditionally voted Conservative. And I wonder what they must be thinking now uh, when they see what is happening to the farming industry, if I can call it that, where uh, we do seem to be on a slippery slope. We do seem to be heading towards an environment where low quality is preferred to local produce. And that seems to me to be completely unacceptable. I mean, first of all, it's prejudicial to the local producers, uh, as if that weren't bad enough. But then to say to people who might be, you know, on a limited budget, but that's okay, here's some dreadful stuff from elsewhere. (laughs) You don't have to feed your family quality food anymore. We can give you cheap food. We can stick this on the supermarket shelves. uh, And, you know, never mind the quality, feel the width. And and farmers are already dealing with the the impact of of Brexit as well, which has harmed their 
that their industry and, and their trade at a farm down the road from me has had to stop sending uh, cheese packets to Northern Ireland uh, because the customs declarations forms were just too complex and too detailed for them to do without taking on an extra an extra employee. I mean, that, that's just that's just bonkers. Um, so I, I think it is very concerning that both in Brexit and, and both in this trade deal, the needs of, of farmers and the farming community does seem to have just been ignored. Um, you would think that would maybe concentrate some minds in the farming community and maybe think pe- people make people think about um, what to do with their votes. But I'm a big believer that you have to go out there and win votes. So it's not just about them feeling let down by a political party. It's also the job of other political parties to show them what they can do to support them and what they would do differently. But what would you do differently? I mean, if if, if somebody like Liz Truss has decided that cheap, low-quality food is going to be uh, the future, uh, what could you possibly do? Well, I mean, independence <laughs> would be a big start for Scotland, and then we could be negotiating our, our own trade arrangements or rejoining the EU, if that's what people want to do, um, to help support that and have that that agreed framework of uh, international standards and international um, agreements on, on what farmers can do. Um, so, yeah, it, independence would be, the, would be the short answer to that and, and have our own control over that. But there are there is work we can do in the Scottish Parliament. We do have um, currently... Um, We'll see what happens in the longer term. Uh, powers over agriculture, and we could put through an, an agriculture bill, bill that would help to alleviate some of this. I think particularly it's been very clear from the Australia deal that the needs of, of marginal farmers, uh, sheep, sheep farmers, hill farmers, like like I have around here, um, have been particularly overlooked, and small scale farmers, crofters, and the like, where you know they don't have huge land holdings that are um, being heavily subsidised or, or very tax efficient, where they are genuinely eking out an existence on a very small amount of land and um, that they need more support uh, and that and that sort of farming is really sustainable and much better for the environment as well yeah i mean yeah you're, you're right i mean it's it, it's hard it's hard to argue with any of that it, it, a lot of people must be very frustrated though because you know we're looking at a situation where we're five years into brexit now we're getting these odd trade deals popping up <laughs> And, uh, and we're, we're being assured uh, consistently and continually that we shouldn't worry our pretty little heads because it's all going to work out well in the end. And farmers aren't really upset, really. There's a bunch of troublemakers out there, perhaps, uh, but farmers, by and large, are fairly happy with this. That's what we're being told. I mean, I, I saw that on, 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 on TV. Uh, but, so, you know, what you said, with respect, sounds terribly worthy, but you know, it's, it's, I mean, for a start, let's take your point about independence. Um, a lot of people are suggesting that uh, the SNP has gone off the boil when it comes to independence. And if they have gone off the boil, if it has, this is the case, uh, that is the case, then how does that leave the Greens? I mean, the Greens may be terribly enthusiastic, but you rather need the SNP to be on board on their flagship policy, don't you? <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, both parties were elected, uh, you know, both with with increased numbers to this parliament on, on pledges of, of of calling for another independence referendum in this term of parliament. So, uh, that's that's not going to change from either party. You believe in something, you believe in something, and that's what we'll put forward. Um, the challenge is going to be how that's going to going to happen if if the UK government is insisting on, on not granting a Section 30 order, or I think, as I said this week, certainly not before the next UK general election. Um, and again, that comes down to collaboration and cooperation. It's about working together within Scotland about making that case for why we should be able to have have another vote. Um, and that means working with everybody who's interested in that, but also looking to our international partners. The Green Party are part of the Global Green Movement and part of the Federation of European Greens. And we've been building links across Europe to make sure that um, our the particular needs of Scotland and the particular position we find ourselves in is understood by people uh, across Europe and particularly by European politicians. When we relaunched our Green Yes campaign on a Brexit day last year, as it were, what would have been Brexit day last year, um, that Scar Kelly came, the leader of the European Greens, to speak to that. So, um, and, and some of the 
the strongest voices in the European Parliament in favour of Scottish independence have been Greens, people like Terry Renka. Um, so it, it is about making the international case as well as the national case, um, because, um, you know, if, if we do get to the point where we're at loggerheads and there doesn't seem to be much movement, then the, the right to self-determination is, is in international law. And, and we might have to look to international legal routes to make sure that we can carry that out. What does that mean? Does that mean saying uh, boo sucks to a section 30? We don't need this. We don't want it. We're going to press ahead anyway. I think we need to exhaust all the options that we have on the table to get a section 30 order. Ideally, we would go through the same process as we did for the last independence referendum, a section 30 order, similar franchise, similar question, um, and, and go through that whole process again. But you, you get to the point where if, there, if the... If, if the UK government becomes an immovable object on this, you have to start looking at other alternatives. Um, but I don't think we can start doing that until we have genuinely exhausted all routes that there are to, to a Section 30 order. The UK government appears to be saying something very straightforward and simple, which seemed to me uh, was rather overlooked during the last election, which is that uh, we are not saying no. We are saying no until some indefinite date <laughs> until it suits us <laughs> and you think well surely one ought to have anticipated that that that's exactly the position they would take after all historically that's the way things have been done for over 200 years across mm -hmm. the empire if one looks at the experience of uh, commonwealth countries so there's nothing terribly novel about taking that view um but it, it does sound a bit wet when people uh, and with the prospect, say, well, well, we'll see how it works out, and then perhaps we might head for some other direction. Uh, uh, and all the time, we've got this situation which seems to be getting worse and worse. The farmers are affected now. Uh, the likelihood is that this will extend right across the board because the government has indicated this is, these are the sort of things they're interested in. Yeah. And they're not usually interested in farmers. Uh, and they're not terribly interested in fishermen. They were when they needed their votes for Brexit, <laughs> but not any longer. They got the votes. That's what they wanted. And they've, they've decided they can jettison these, these poor folks, it seems to me. Uh, let's move on to something else if we, if we can. Um, uh, Tom, um, David Parker is concerned about the Australian deal, but from the prospect of the uh, shipment of live animals over, what, 10,000-odd miles? Yeah. And, and, and uh, how, how can the government uh, in Westminster contend that they're trying to address CO2 issues uh, when you're using um, container ships for that sort of purpose? Mm -hmm. um, it makes people as utterly contradictory. Well, I think, I mean, one saving grace for the Australia deal, of course, is that Australia is awfully far away and it's it's not a big part of our, our economy, our trade with Australia. Um, and, and to be honest, is never really likely to be. And I think when you spoke to Australian commentators about this deal, they acknowledge that as well, that their, their main locus of trade and their focus is, is China and Japan and, and Singapore and New Zealand and those the, the Pacific countries nearer, nearer to them. This isn't a big element of their trade. It's not a big element of our trade. And, and, and yeah, thank goodness, because if we were seriously trying to send um, regular um, shipments between the two countries uh, or increase dramatically the shipments between the two countries, not only would that be a bit of an environmental disaster uh, in terms of uh, the CO2 in, in shipping and flights, because obviously a lot of fresh produce from Australia flies here because it would take too long to come by boat. Um, but also there's the, the geopolitical risk we, we saw a, a few months ago, with the, the canal, the Suez Canal getting blocked by a container ship and the absolute chaos that that caused just just one ship for a couple of days um and and you don't want to be reliant on that for for really essential materials or essential goods like like meat and like dairy um and yeah i think we had our manifesto to, to ban live animal exports in general because it's, it's certainly it's certainly not good for the animals to be traveling long distances in in, in enclosed containers here's a question that's close to my heart <laughs> Um, as someone who doesn't eat meat, uh, DER hasn't given us his full name. He says, Do you agree that meat eating is incompatible with being an environmentalist? 
no, <laughs> I, I eat meat myself, um, but I'm very careful about the, the meat I buy and where I get it from. Um, and and I, I think I think it's very easy to think that there's some magic silver bullet, bullet that's going to cure in climate climate change. And if everybody just went vegan, that would fix the problem. And and yes, everybody should be eating much more plant based uh, plant based diet and much more much more vegetables, much more mixed diet all great um but we also need to deal with the the reality of people's lived experience and i think especially in scotland scotland could not sustain its own population just through fruit and vegetables because our, our land quality is not not there for large-scale arable we would have to import a huge amount more food um in order to do that um and whereas an awful lot of, of scottish land especially near me is quite marginal and so you can you can grow um sheep um on on pasture on land that wouldn't be suitable for, for growing vegetables so i think there's a mix and I, you know i've got lots of friends who are vegetarian and vegan and, and all power to them um i think it's it's a great choice um uh, and and it can be a much more sustainable way of eating if you're comparing it to you know sort of you know, your sort of kebab shop meats type fare but i don't think it's it's the only way and i and i think you can definitely be an environmentalist and eat meat because i am one <laughs> A slightly different tack now, if I may. Uh, what's, your, what's your feeling about uh, the Greens accepting ministerial posts? If that, if that is a genuine uh, uh, notion, it's not just some figment of the, the media. But uh, assuming that this has been a proper offer by the SN administration, how do you feel about your Green colleagues taking up ministerial posts? Well, there's no offers on the table as yet. Um, we're, we're at very early stages in, in, in these formal talks and negotiations. And, and we're, we're talking about political cooperation deal rather than a coalition. But so, um, about uh, well, we're a party that believes in, in political cooperation and collaboration. We're a party that believes in, in working together. And I think you've seen that through our, our record in, in Parliament that we've always tried to work constructively and to work with other parties um, and, and to get as much as we can of our manifesto through. But where we can find common ground with, with other parties, we will absolutely do that. So I want to see more of that. If a formal uh, cooperation agreement um, enables us to deliver more of our manifesto than our seven MSPs would um, in, in the chamber through the next parliamentary session, then that's that's a good thing. Um, but we, we will have to sit and wait and see what what actually comes out of the negotiations. Uh, so far, we've, we've obviously got the views of our members. We've got the political cooperation working group together that's going to lead the negotiations. And we've got a, a sort of long list of, of areas where both us and the SNP are, are happy to discuss things. Um, and we'll, we'll see where the talks go and, 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 and what level of agreement is, is agreed to. But political cooperation is quite a, a big spectrum. It, it could be something like in New Zealand, uh, where, where there's ministerial positions and agreements on certain areas. Um, but as in New Zealand, they they also don't agree on everything. So they do oppose in areas where they 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 have differing views and, and vote against the government. So I think if we can do a combination and we can get a deal that, that gets uh, some of the manifesto commitments through, I think especially on on climate and the environment where we know time is really running out, um, you know, then then hopefully that that will be something that we that the electorate will be as happy with as where we are. Yeah. Uh... I think most people would agree with pretty much everything you said because they probably look at the experience of the Lib Dems when they got into bed, if I can use that term, with the Conservatives to form a coalition. And uh, it, it did them no good in the end because they ended up having to sign up for policies like, for example, on tuition fees, which were an anathema. In fact, their leader had said prior to the election over my dead body, and then yep. Give that all up for a ministerial Mondeo. Uh, you know, that, 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 that is a real danger, one would think, based on that precedent. Oh, or yeah, that. absolutely. I mean, I think, I don't think anyone's going into these negotiations without bearing that in mind, bearing what's happened in Ireland with the Irish Greens in mind as well. I would say cooperation is different to coalition. So we, we wouldn't be 
in government and and we would be able to oppose certain areas and there are obviously areas where where our policies and the SNP's policies are very different but I think there are some areas where where we can definitely work together and, and, and some areas I'm sure where we've probably got better policies than them and it'll be quite handy for them to to use our policy and and say oh well <laughs> look what the Greens made us do. <laughs> so you would in fact draw a clear distinction between uh, being in government and being influential. Yes, so the, this is, the government has been formed, certainly, you know, after the election, the Scottish government is in, it's an SNP government. Um, so these talks are about cooperation, not a coalition. And in a coalition, you are part of the government. Yeah, and you 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 have ministerial jobs. Yeah, you could get junior ministerial posts through um, a, a cooperation agreement, but it wouldn't be a cabinet position, for example. Position. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, that that I suppose gives you a little bit of distance, which it seems to me is going to be necessary. Otherwise, you become incorporated. <laughs> Yeah, and it would be very hard to see how we could agree, you know, certainly in some some areas of policy where we are very, very different, but, you know, it would be hard to see how we could possibly come to an agreement that, um, uh, well, certainly in our case, um, the Greens are a very grassroots democratic party, so whatever deal we come up with, the party will have to approve first, uh, and, and the party is very unlikely to approve a deal where we're you know, we, we, we've we've ditched uh, land reform or, you know, we've, we've moved our, our education policy to a right centre of policy as opposed to where we are now. So, you know, those things will all, all be discussed, but um, it, it, it is going to be hard to see in certain areas where, where an actual cooperation deal could be made. Yeah, we, we've talked to a lot of people in the programme, educationalists and people who want to see change in the educational system in Scotland, and several have argued very coherently and cogently, it seems to me, uh, in favour of starting school at six. Uh, I, that, that, not that there wouldn't be kindergartens, not that there wouldn't be other facilities uh, for children, but formal education. A lot of people believe, in, they say increasingly, others believe too, uh, that, that Scotland should follow the Finnish example, yeah. which, which is for children to start at six. I think seven actually in Finland. Seven. So it's it's yeah, it's the year in which they turn seven anyway. So, yeah. so what's your take on that? Are you in favour of that or get it? Yes, yeah, that was it. That was in our manifesto this time round. I mean, we 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 talked a lot to Upstart Scotland, which is a. a campaign groups that, that's been campaigning for that um, and, and it's not just Finland's we're, we're very unusual in the UK in sending our children to formal education at four in many cases uh, Scotland for a long time has um, has sort of um, been much more flexible in terms of deferrals I, I deferred my my youngest daughter because she's a February birthday so she she's not starting primary until she's five and a half um whereas my 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 nephews in England um my my sister had to fight really hard to 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 keep her, her younger one um um to give him an extra year they both August birthdays so they they literally had just turned four and then were expected to you know sit for six hours a day around a desk in a classroom which um is just absurd so so certainly in terms of the international standards and um international best practice starting formal schooling later and having much more emphasis on learning through play and outdoor learning in the early years um is, is generally considered to be the best approach and, and we think that's what scotland should be aiming for yeah well, that's, that's interesting we've had upstart on the on the program so uh, that echoes very much their their, their view a question from uh, Charles Smith. He, he says, what would your priority subject topic be uh, for discussion in a citizens' assembly? Well, that's a very timely question because uh, tomorrow the Climate Citizens' Assembly in Scotland is laying its uh, proposals before Parliament, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I was, I was the Green Party's representative on the stirring group behind the Climate uh, Citizens' Assembly in Scotland. That was came about through an amendment that the Greens put in the last climate bill. So I'm a big fan of citizens' assemblies and more participatory democracy generally. Um, and obviously with climate having been done, as it were, um, I think I think the next obvious place for a citizens assembly would would be constitutional affairs um i think if especially if we were to have another independence referendum and vote for independence i think that has to be something that would happen in that interim period uh, where we get people together get citizens together to talk about 
how we want Scotland to, to, to be and how we want it to look and how we want it to prioritise its government because we will be essentially building a new country from scratch and it's really important that people's voices are heard in that. So I'm quite a fan of the Citizens' Assembly process. I think it's been, um, certainly my experience from the Climate Citizens' Assembly has, um, has been really, really fantastic and, and the report makes it clear that a lot of the Assembly members got a huge deal, a huge amount out of the process as well. Well, you, you would like to see what the, um, a written constitution? I would like to see a written constitution, yes. Yeah. Why? Uh, I think for clarity's sake, if nothing else, um, for the UK, we, we've had this uh, unwritten constitution for a very long time. And it's depended, I mean, it's served as well for many years, but it's depended an awful lot on good behaviour, on, uh, on, on a, a degree of cultural and social. Uh, norms being in place that um, I think we're starting to see certainly over the last decade or so um, that those norms um, have started to crumble and we've really seen the constitution pushed pushed to the edge really it's, it's never really coped with devolution it wasn't wasn't really designed for that kind of setup so it doesn't really make sense in a, in a devolved government context anyway um, and it certainly doesn't cope with um, the, the kind of politicians we've currently got uh, in the UK government and, and the way they seem to be very willing to pay fast and loose with, with niceties like um, whether or not Parliament stands and makes decisions and votes on things, how long they might get to discuss something important like changing our constitution by leaving the EU. <laughs> um, so I think, I think, you know, a written constitution that everybody has a part in creating um, I think would be a really great building block for, for creating a better nation and a fairer nation. Now, the SNB have um, assigned uh, the constitution. I'm not sure what that means in this context, but the word constitution has been assigned to Angus Robertson. Would you be saying to Angus Robertson, hey, I, I'm not sure necessarily what your job is in total, but we'd like at least part of it to be a written constitution? <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I think... It is one of the areas um, that, that might come up in, in the discussion. I mean, it, it's generally been seen that it is one of the areas where the SNP and Greens have, have a similar stance. And we're both, we both oppose the House of Lords. Um, we, we both are pro-independence. Um, uh, I think the main difference is, is the, the monarchy. Um, the, the Scottish Greens are a Republican party and we'd abolish the monarchy. And the SNP are generally less, less keen on that sort of thing. Um, so... It could be, but I don't know if there'd necessarily be a purpose in writing constitution unless we're an independent country, because ultimately um, so many of the constitutional affairs are, are, are decided at Westminster. But don't you think it might be helpful to people who are swithering over the whole idea of, for example, somebody that uh, might be thinking, I, I like the Greens. Uh, they might be saying, I love the Greens. But what I want to avoid at all costs is a simple repetition of what happens at Westminster with all the bad practice that you've just outlined mm -hmm. uh, upon independence, with yeah. no guarantees that my human rights, for example, would be, would be protected because there would be nothing in place. Say, for example, independence, which you say would be a good thing, were to happen tomorrow morning. Absent a written constitution. We'd be yeah. in the same position as uh, Boris Johnson right now, surely. Well, you'd have to start from, from scratch. I mean, you, you would have to, that's the thing, isn't it? You, if you didn't have one, you would have to invent one. Um, and, and that would have to happen. But obviously, in the event of an independence, say, referendum, there's going to be a period between the vote and the outcome and, and the actual independence day, as that was with the Brexit process, say. Um, and and that, that time period is when you can have these discussions. Because the problem is, if you have the discussions in advance, um, you, you're going to struggle either to get participation, fair participation from both sides of the yes, no argument, um, and you're going to have difficulty really understanding what, what terms you're, you're looking at and, and what your, your deal is in terms of leaving and, and how you're going to want to build that together. So um, I, I think it would need to be in that interim period that you would have yeah. this process. I could, I could see it, 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 it's, it's problematic, it's not easy, it, uh, but other countries do it. I mean, most countries historically that, uh, that decide to secede or, or have a view about uh, secession 
the, the first thing they do is to draw up a written constitution because they want to reassure people both inside the entity and international opinion that certain moral standards will be upheld in this putative new state. Uh, it seems a little bit cavalier to say, well, well, we'll just leave it. It's one of these things we have to take care of. As <laughs> but it is one thing, I mean, and this is the really interesting thing with this, the Climate Citizens Assembly, that what was really important was the people participating in that were genuinely reflective of Scottish society. And that included climate change deniers, as well as people at the other end of the spectrum, like me, who are very keen on the environment and, 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 and aware of the climate crisis. And that's the problem you're going to have that I think any constitution can't just be handed down from on high. It can't just be written by constitutional lawyers and, and politicians. It has to be something that is created by the people of Scotland. And it has to be all of the people of Scotland have to be represented in that. And my fear is that if you ruin that process prior to there being a, a decision on whether or not we're going to be independent, that you would have people not participating who need to be there. You know, if we're going to make a success of an independent Scotland, we have to bring everybody with us and that includes people who don't agree with an independent Scotland because we have to find a way forward together. Um, thank you for that, that's very helpful. Uh, Thomas MacArthur says, uh, Scotland needs to go hydrogen cars and buses, what do you think? I have misgivings about hydrogen. So, so there's three main sorts of hydrogen. There's green hydrogen, which is good. Uh, there's blue hydrogen uh, and there's grey hydrogen. And um, there's lots of lobbying coming for the grey hydrogen. And the reason for that is simple. It's because it's made by using natural gas. So the oil and gas sector know their time is running out and they're looking at other opportunities and this is a good wheeze for them to say, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just do hydrogen instead. It's fine. But it's not. It still is polluting it still involves natural gas extraction and use um green hydrogen is much better but the problem is it's going to be very hard to scale up in the time that we have um and, and i know there's there's been a lot of talk of sort of essentially replacing natural gas with hydrogen so we can all keep using our gas boilers and things the problem is that hydrogen is awfully burny it's very unstable and it's very dangerous um and i am not convinced our pipe network would cope with such a, a switch um so I, I think it's one of these things it sounds really good and exciting and it's one of these um technical silver bullets that people like to think we can all just keep carrying on living as we have been so far if we can just do carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and our lives don't need to change at all and the reality is that those kind of big tech, big investment um, solutions to the climate crisis are, are not the solutions to the climate crisis. They're, they're, they're too expensive. They're too centralized. We need the solutions to the climate crisis already exist. You know, we already have electricity for cars and buses. We already have, um, you know, cycling. Uh, we, we already have trees. Um, we have the tools there and they're much more easy to replicate in local communities and to scale up in local communities and on the individual level um, than these big investment projects in, in the likes of carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. So I'm very skeptical about it. It might end up being part of the solution. Um, one thing I've been quite following with interest is hydrogen trains uh, in Germany, they've got some hydrogen fuel cell trains, which are a good solution for those lines that can't be electrified. Um, but I think beyond that, in terms of domestic use um, and in terms of standard cars and, and, and regular buses, I'm a bit more skeptical about their scalability and their affordability in, in the time that we have. Yeah, thanks for that. You mentioned Germany there. Mm -hmm. um, I gather the Greens are doing rather well in Germany. They are, yes, yes, polling, polling very well and, and a big change over the last few years. Yeah, real, real increase in the votes. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to watch and, and see them develop. Um, and obviously we're in contact with German Greens through our, our membership of the Federation of European Greens. Um, I would say their, their political positioning is, is slightly different to ours, where we're probably more to the left than, than the German Greens, but then generally Germany is much more of a sort of centrist right of center kind of country um but yeah it's been really interesting seeing how they've grown and i think what intrigues me is the the greens generally tend to be quite 
a likable party. Most people don't find us offensive. They quite like us, but they're not actually sure um, we've got what it takes. And, and that's that's the trick the German Greens seem to have kind of pulled off in the last few years. They've got enough councils, enough mayors, enough um, local government. And Germany does have genuinely local government, unlike Scotland. So this is possible. They've built up credibility and they've built up a reputation for competence and capability. And, and that's really what seems to have changed things for them in the polls, that suddenly everybody's gone, actually, we care about the environment. These are the party with the answer. And we trust that they will be able to deliver. Where are they running just now? Are they running number two? To, uh... Uh, I think the last poll I saw, they had just edged ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I think because they had been sort of trending upwards in the polls, um, supporters of other parties um, more to the left had sort of have started to change allegiance, thinking actually this is the, the chance to 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 oust the CDU, who've obviously been in power with Angela Merkel for a very long time and really seem to not have any plan for, for what to do post-Merkel. Um, yeah, very reminiscent in many ways of the Tory government post-Thatcher. Post it's a very similar vibe of, <laughs> um, oh no, what, <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to see in Germany what's going on. We've had a question about COP26. What, what's your take on COP26? Well, really looking forward to it, and I very much hope it does happen. Um, I, I'm concerned that in the current climate, um, it's going to be difficult for the most affected people and places to contribute. And I'm concerned that if they are not there, if their voices are not in the room, they will be ignored. I think there's huge potential for COP26. We saw with the Paris climate agreements that the, the world sat up and took notice of climate and set great targets. And the problem now is, okay, we need to take those targets and we need to act. And, and so the COP26 is really going to be about the climate actions. What are all the world governments going to commit to do to act? And I think, again, with Joe Biden's pre presidency, there is a serious possibility now that there will be actual actions and, and big governments backing them up. Um, so there's, it's hugely exciting. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And I'm really glad this is happening in Scotland. Um, I'm delighted that uh, we have a Green presiding officer or former Green uh, presiding officer from, from the Scottish Parliament who will represent represent us in part there. Um, and, and there seems to be lots of um, lots of things going along in the fringes, I'm, I'm hearing of all sorts of events and activities going on so that um, ordinary people in Scotland and local communities can participate. So, um, yeah, I, I hope people can attend. I hope it goes ahead and I hope it actually lives up to some of the expectations we have of it. And I hope everybody holds it to that. You know, that's what we should all be lobbying for, that, that there are actions and not just warm words. It's interesting. Here's a slightly, we, we touched on this earlier, but obviously people would, have a view on it. Uh, Thomas MacArthur is asking why the Greens don't do nearly as well in England uh, as they do in Scotland. Is that simply because of proportional representation? Yeah, I could, I could sum that up in two words, proportional representation. Um, the Greens have been doing very well in England, certainly in the last two sort of council elections. In England, they do sort of council local authority elections every two years, but different councils. So most people have a district council and then they'll have their local council and they have parish councils, which are much more empowered. Um, and, and in both the sort of last batches of council elections, the Greens have, have had a surge. They've really increased um, increased their numbers and making real inroads in Tory areas, um, not necessarily because they're, they're a more right-wing party, although they probably are slightly to the right of the Scottish Greens, but because they've got a really strong reputation for localism. They tend to have really good, hardworking local people as, as representatives. So, so they are making the difference there. But yeah, at, at government level, at Westminster level, uh, the first past the post system makes it incredibly hard. Um, and the boundary commission changes that are being proposed are looking like making that even harder. Um, Caroline Lucas is looking pretty unassailable, but um, finding the next person, finding the next seat uh, for the Greens in England is incredibly hard just because of first past the post. I mean, it seems to me you, you, you probably find yourself going head to head in England with, uh, say you, I mean, the Greens generally, uh, with, with the Lib Dems, because that's where a lot of the disaffected uh, major party vote goes. It goes to Lib Dems because it's a safe choice. 
Yeah. Of course, the time that you make real uh, traction will be when people decide that the Greens are the safe choice if they don't want, if they dislike the two major parties, as it were. Um, so, uh, it, so in other words, you, you find yourself competing there. I mean, that happened in Scotland, but what's happened in the last election, it seems to me, is that the Lib Dems have slipped back. Yeah. Because I think, they, yeah. what depended yeah. on tactical voting, perhaps. Whereas you, yeah. were, you were espousing a clear policy difference. Uh, maybe people, there were fewer people voting tactically for you than were perhaps for the Lib Dems. I think I think I mean the Lib Dems are facing a real challenge at the moment because um, you know obviously with the change nationally on their stance on the European Union um, on, on not wanting to to re-enter the EU um, ha- has alienated a lot of their their core activists and and, and a number of their core, core voters um, and and that's gonna that's really problematic and it's problematic for them in Scotland as well because it's very hard for them to plough a, a unique line in terms of their positions on the constitutional questions that people in Scotland in people in Scotland face and I think that's been their their, their real challenge we got um slightly more MSPs than them last time round, and then this in this election significantly more so that so they're no longer formally I think under the party um rules in in parliament considered to be a, a party grouping uh, with four four MSPs so it's going to be a, a long road for for them to, to come back and you know, obviously previously they had been in, in government in Scotland as part of the coalition so yeah, yeah um a, a hard a hard position to be in but yeah this is this is the reality of politics unfortunately well, they, they seem to have jumped the they jumped Europe and jumped into this sort of muscular unionism cap and personally I don't understand it I can't see the logic of it but clearly uh, it's a sort of uh, process that parties go through when they're heading for extinction, they look out to the core vote, as it were, rather than trying to convince new people. Yeah, I mean, and they did a great job, you know, in their constituencies, they really targeted, you know, and you saw that that paid off. They held on to the constituencies, but yeah, it meant in the, in the areas where they weren't active in constituencies, they, they, they really, really struggled. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a tough one, and I don't envy them the position they're in. And, and, and yeah, making it clear to voters what you stand for and what you believe in is, is always the key in every election and having really clear, coherent messaging that's different to others um, is very hard if you're if, if you're a small party and making your voice heard. And it's going to get harder, actually, because if they're they're not classed as a major party anymore, they're going to find themselves in a position the Greens used to be in of, of having to fight to get media coverage, having to fight to take part in debates. And, you know, that it's hard. It's really hard to come back from that. Taking up your point about how important it is as a, a minor party to make your point, make sure people understand your policies, etc. George Aitken has uh, been in touch to say, I'm a bit shocked, but pleasantly surprised that the green stance on the monarchy. <laughs> it's a Marmite policy, that one. And, you know, it really is. It is uh, either people are like, oh, I think it's, it's interesting because indiv- a lot of individual politicians will, will privately, you know, be lukewarm about, about the monarchy. Um, but in, in in the political sphere, absolutely every party, apart from the Greens, is is pro monarchy. Is, is is not a Republican party. We're the only ones that have a very clear stance on that, which did make um, the, the sad death of, of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, during the election campaign quite quite tricky for one to, for us to handle in terms of our, our media comment because you know we had to just be very clear you know our, our stance on the monarchy hasn't changed obviously very sad situation for the for the queen um and, and and his family members but a lot of people have lost family members over the last last year and, and it's sad for everybody well you could argue that the whole point of political parties is to lead not to follow yeah and, uh, we've had a, <coughs> a, a, a somewhat complex question uh and I'm worried that we might not have, you might not have time to answer it, but here goes. Uh, so please forgive me if I cut you off at some stage. It's not about anything personal, it's just that we're running out of time here. Um, the question is from Kevin. He's saying, Laura, Iceland uses natural hot spring water to keep roadways clear of ice and snow using underground pipes. What, if anything, could the Scottish government do to prepare uh, all for forthcoming winter snows and keeping not only the roadways clear, but also the public and industry safe in using the roadways. 
So, um, well, with climate change, we're getting less and less hard winters, so it's perhaps going to be less of an issue. Um, my concern with this is not so much roadways, it is um, active travel routes and pavements. Um, I actually think given the circumstances and given that we're not a country that regularly experiences terrible snow and therefore financially it's not necessarily a wise investment to go down the Iceland route we do a reasonable job of keeping the roads clear what we don't do a good job of is keeping is keeping pavements clear and keeping cycle paths clear and 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 that can be fatal uh, it can be very serious and, and it's a big gender issue as well um it, it makes it very hard for for and it tends to be women, people doing the, the run to school and back or um, older people going out, getting their, their shopping on foot and makes it very difficult to do all of that. So I'd like to see more investment and more focus on making sure that cycle paths and, and, and pathways are clear um, as well as roads. And that's presumably a primarily a local authority responsibility. Yes, yes. All, all about funding for local authorities, which is also vital. And it's a crying shame you haven't had a chance to get into that tonight because <laughs> I'm sure people would have been very interested in your views. But very, if you can, uh, <laughs> I hate to ask you to do this, but we've only got about four minutes to go. <clears throat> can you just condense your party's view on local government, what needs to be done, uh, and why the... Well, Forget why the present system isn't working, because we're probably out of time. It's probably clear to no. many. People. Uh, what would you What would you replace the present system structure with? So I'm going to recommend a website for everybody. If you go to Ballot Box Scotland and look at their new municipalism project, sorry, it's quite big. Have a good look at that because that actually outlines quite nicely quite a lot of, of green thinking. Essentially, we want to be like a normal European country. So that means much more local, genuinely local government uh, where people are, are close to their representatives and can hold them to account. And they'll work together across municipalities um, if, if it makes sense to do so, but so that people are genuinely locally represented and, and their voice is heard because um, that's a, I mean and this is part of the reason why the Greens support independence you know we believe in subsidiarity and localism we believe on always giving power at the, the closest possible level to people um, and, and driving power down all the time and, and if we don't have meaningful local government which we don't in Scotland that that is impossible. Give me an example of that then again briefly please I mean <clears throat> um, I live in Kenrosha which has been lumped in with Persia. Yeah. We feel like a sort of poor relation much of the time because yeah. the focus is essentially about Perth. Uh, and once in a while, something nods in the direction of Russia, which in the past used to have its own council. Uh, is it your view that there ought to be more councils, i.e. as part of this um, no. subsidiarity discussion and policy? Yes. So where I live, I live in Dumfries and Galloway, and that's the 12th biggest council in, in by area in, in Scotland. Um, and what was here before, you would have had town councils and then you would have had sort of ridings almost. So Dumfries and Galloway would have had uh, Wheatownshire, um, Stewartry, where I live, um, Nisdale and, and Annandale. And, and those to me seem much more logical local groupings because they are meaningfully local because in, in areas like mine again you have the same problem Dumfries and Stranra are two biggest towns are more than 70 miles apart from each other and everything has ended up being centralized in Dumfries <laughs> and people in Stranra just feel like their concerns their their issues just do not address they're just not then just not thought of um, and life in Dumfries is very different um to, to life in, in Stranra and the issues that you face there and the issues I face in, in a small rural community are different to the issues that people living in, in South Scotland's largest town face. I just don't understand why it's so, I mean, the SNP have been in power for 12 years now. You would think somewhere on the way, somebody would say, hey, this is blindingly self-evident, we ought to do something about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the SNP tends to centralisation anyway, sort of philosophically, I think. They, they want to get power um, in Edinburgh instead of in London, ultimately. Um, and, and I think for a long time as well, politically, strategy-wise, a lot of the councils were, were Labour-dominated, so it made political sense to bring as much power back to the centre. But it's not good for people. Pe people need to feel that decisions that affect them are made near them and that they have some influence over them and and you out here you just don't feel that in terms of, of, of Holyrood and I don't even feel that in terms of Dumfries so I'd rather decisions that affect me were being made in Kikubri or Castle Douglas which are nearer where I live. If you say these words 
there'll be loads of people in the audience today cheering you to the echo. Or saying you're not more councillors, not more politicians. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's what happens. Laura, thank you very much. This has been educational, informative, and uh, altogether very enjoyable. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, We're almost up, folks. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. I think it's been terrific, super. Uh, So, and a big thank you to all of you who have joined us tonight. As ever, we have some great guests lined up in the future shows. uh, And look out for uh, Lynn uh, next week, Anderson, who's a celebrated Scottish crime author. And she'll be talking about uh, Bloody Scotland and crime uh, novels in, in general. So look out for Lynn. Uh, she's a major, major seller in uh, in, in Scottish crime uh, uh, novels. Uh, and look out for my, please, for my constitutional column in the Sunday National. And very importantly, please support Indie Live. I know many of you supported the crowdfunder, and you'll find there's a great range of uh, fantastic programmes, both on radio, audio, and, and visual as well. Uh, thank you again for joining us tonight, and a big thank you to Laura. Uh, 